Hey everyone, welcome to Women's Work, Rising, Leading, and Thriving, produced by the Institute for Women, Wellness, and Work at Ursuline College. I'm Gina Messina, and this is a podcast that empowers women to recognize ourselves as the leaders we've been waiting for. I'm grateful to be welcoming Sophia Fifner to the conversation to discuss her distinguished career in civic engagement and public relations, beginning with her role as a Senate staffer on Capitol Hill to now serving as the Community Relations Chief of Parks and Recreation for the City of Columbus. Sophia is an experienced leader, mentor, and advocate living out her mission to help our communities thrive. Sophia, I am so delighted to be talking with you and so grateful that you made the time for me because I can only imagine how busy your days are in knowing that you are the chief community relations officer for the city of Columbus, uh, the 14th largest city in the nation, which I think a lot of people don't know that, for the Department of Park and Recreations. And in addition to managing this full-time amazing career, You're also a mom and an activist and advocate for women and girls. And I just see you doing incredible things, an absolute change agent. So thank you for being here. Oh my goodness. Thank thank you for having me. I'm really excited to participate. And honestly, it's very easy to say yes to anything that supports women and girls. So I'm I'm happy I'm happy to be part of today's program. That is just wonderful and really a tribute to your your spirit and your commitment to doing the work for positive change, which I completely appreciate and find inspiring. I wanted to start off our conversation because you have just an incredible background in history. And I see that you had launched yourself as a staffer on Capitol Hill for a senator, um, Senator George Boinovich, right? And have had, you know, just a career launch from there that has led you to do amazing things. So can you talk a little bit about how you ended up on Capitol Hill and how it led you to where you are now? Yeah, you know, honestly, I'd like to say that my career was well thought out and I always knew that I wanted to work on Capitol Hill, but that wasn't quite the case. Uh, My father, who... To this day, I don't think he would ever describe himself as a feminist, but he absolutely is. I remember running for, uh, and, and all jobs are important, but we were running for class officer positions in fifth grade. And I told my father that I wanted to be secretary. And I remember in fifth grade, him becoming incredibly upset with me that I wanted to be secretary and not president. And like I said, all roles are important, but I think for him, he saw greater potential in me than I saw in myself. So when I was in undergrad, I was planning on coming back to my hometown in a small suburb and in, in outside of Columbus, uh, just to work for the summer. And my dad received an email from a coworker that said, hey, there's this wonderful opportunity to have an internship in Washington, DC with the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation. You should have your daughter apply. And I remember the deadline for application was 48 hours. I had to get it in the mail within 48 hours. And my dad drove to Miami University to help me with not only completing the application, but getting it in the mail on time. And that's what propelled my my journey into working in government and working in a career of service. So when I graduated from Miami, 
I knew that I had a passion for serving others. Uh, and so I was very interested in working on Capitol Hill. I leveraged the relationships I had built over the four years of undergrad to stay in touch with staffers and with contacts in Washington, D.C. And I was very fortunate to go through the interview process and, and start my career with Senator Voinovich. What a great role model and a great representative for the state of Ohio. That is fantastic. So I wonder, what was your experience like as a woman on Capitol Hill? What was that like for you and what kinds of things did it inspire for you? The one thing that I think, even as an intern, I didn't quite see, but especially as a staffer, Capitol Hill, the actual staff that does the work, they are very young professionals. You know, the chief of staff for the, the office at the time had just turned 30. So you have you know, senators and representatives from all over the country who are creating policy that truly changed the trajectory of the everyday American's life and quite frankly, of the world. And oftentimes they're pretty young. And as a young woman, what I realized while working on Capitol Hill was how important my voice was. I learned how to navigate walking into a room of perhaps senators or representatives who are oftentimes older than their staffers and being able to command the room with information. I think everyone, especially if you've had the opportunity to live decades of your life, I feel like I was able to come into my own and really figure out what I was passionate about, what my career should look like when I worked on Capitol Hill because of all the opportunities to meet with so many wonderful nonprofit organizations, community advocates, um, and international leaders. So I have to tell you, I'm constantly talking to my students about recognizing the importance of their voice, that you have a voice and it's so important that you use it. And I create a lot of my assignments around writing your local representative about an issue that's important to you, because I don't think that we all realize the power that we have behind our voice and how we can use it. And so I I love that you shared that experience. And I wonder if you would mind sharing now as chief community relations officer, what does that entail for you? And, you know, how did your experience on Capitol Hill carry you here and really give you what you find to be the most important skills that you use in your job? So a few things. So one, I think oftentimes speaking of students are actually most Americans. There's this perception that your elected officials or your senators or representatives aren't listening to residents. But as the person who received the hundreds, thousands of phone calls regarding the Affordable Care Act, who reviewed all of the letters that were coming into the senator's office about important legislative issues, I can't stress how important it is to leverage your voice and to communicate about the things you're passionate about, because that advocacy, whether you be a neighbor, a mother, if you're an executive at a large corporation, it matters and it certainly makes a difference. And oftentimes those representatives and those senators, their goal is just to serve and to make sure that they are making decisions that reflect their constituency. In my current role as the community relations chief for recreation and parks, one, I had no no idea how vast our department is. We have over 400 parks, over 29 community centers. We have multiple golf courses and pools and all of the things you would think of when you think of recreation. But on top of that, our department is also the largest summer food provider in the state of Ohio. We have an active violence intervention program that is very complementary to the Columbus Police Department, providing those wraparound services to support some of the most challenging neighborhoods in the city of Columbus. So with regards to using your voice and using the skills that I took from Washington, D.C., is one that resident advocacy matters. I learned how to listen. 
how to be compassionate and caring because, you know, when you have a resident who's very upset about the direction of an issue or a thing that's happening in their life or in their community, the fact that they're even reaching out to you, I think shows a level of, of, of urgency. And I try to um, treat every single individual that I meet and encounter with empathy, with respect, and I try to solve their problems because at the end of the day, Government should be a tool and resource for community members to hopefully solve problems or at least connect them to the right resources they need to fix whatever the concern is. That's really, I think, so important for people to hear because generally when we think of government, I mean, right now, there's so many things going on in our nation and so many struggles. And I think we need to understand that government is meant to serve the people. It's meant to ensure that everybody has what they need, right? And the way that you talk about your work, I think, is so critical to acknowledge in relation just to leadership in general, how important characteristics like compassion and empathy are in being a leader. I think those are really necessary skills to be a strong and effective leader. And I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Yes, absolutely. I start each week. I have a little reminder on my calendar to start each week with kindness, with grace, and to focus on relationships. And that's incredibly important to me as a leader within our department and within our city, but then also as a leader within the community. You know, I, I realize that, especially in today's world, emotions are running pretty hot on a lot of issues. And if I approach any issue that, that comes my way, whether it be a personnel issue, if it's a project issue, I really want to have the lens of, let me figure out how we can work together and I can show compassion. And then also, um, <laughs> let's give each other a little bit of grace, including myself. I make mistakes, other people make mistakes. And I hope that we can live in a, a gracious world where you know, we can solve problems together. In your tenure in this position, you have managed all of the crisis communication around COVID-19. I can't even imagine what that must be like. First of all, I might be wrongly assuming that this might be the greatest challenge you have had. So I wonder, is it the greatest challenge you've had? And what was it like navigating that? And what were the most important skills that you, you utilized in addressing all of these different issues that were coming up. Yes, yes. So so you're correct in saying uh, to date, it was probably one of my most complex challenges that I had to navigate, not just because we're in the middle of a pandemic, but because I was also pregnant at the time. Oh, and wow. then there was a huge local and national and international dialogue around race and race relationships. And as I mentioned, our department provides a lot of wraparound services that complement the Columbus Police Department. Our department also permits everything that happens on Columbus streets. So if there's a parade, a festival, or a protest, our department is also engaged. And in my current role, my job is managing communications, government relations, and our relationship with residents and constituents around Central Ohio. So uh, the first half of 2020 was certainly a overwhelming, exciting, exhausting, exhilarating, fill-in-the-blank adjective experience. From a crisis communication standpoint, we, as a department, we have community center staff. We might have three full-time staff members who work in a community center that is was built in 1970, fill-in-the-blank, and only has one computer. So one of the first things that we focused on was crisis communications around internal communications. Because as a government, 
body and department, we didn't necessarily have all of the high-tech tools or the latest gadgets to make sure that our staff members were informed of all the policy changes that were taking place at a rapid speed in a way that was meaningful. So we, uh, the first thing we did was making sure that our staff members had access to technology, that we were communicating with them regularly, and, it, and we could establish video connections so we could have larger groups with several different tiers of staff members. You know, our department has 1,700 employees at our peak season. So, and those employees are incredibly diverse, whether they be, you know, part-time moms and dads or senior citizens or recent graduates. So we had to find channels and methods of communication to make sure that they received important information, not only to keep themselves safe as, as employees of recreation and parks, but also to keep residents safe. And then the other half of the crisis communications was around all of the updates and changes to how we were going to pursue programming, if our facilities would remain open, what types of rules and norms we need to, to change or modify or influence for the residents who are visiting our parks to make sure we could do everything we could to reduce the spread of COVID-19. So it was a, an incredibly exciting experience. One more layer of complication, I was down a couple of staff members on my comm shop at the time, and we were just starting to bring on a new comms leader. So um, in addition to trying to operationalize this communications internal and external. I was also the person who was doing live interviews with press locally at our, our parks to help inform residents what's going on. And as a mom, our daycares were closed. So I was bringing my three-year-old as my production assistant <laughs> to these interviews. She started to call our closest park to our house, mommy's remote office, because I would pack her up in the car or walk with her to get over there, me with you know my three-year-old, my pregnant self, trying to explain, please wear your mask. Yes, our parks are open, and we we want to keep everyone safe and healthy. So it was a it was a very exciting time, um, and I learned a lot of lessons about how to effectively communicate uh, on a variety of levels. You you share so much here, and I feel like oh my gosh, I'm thinking about so many different things in response to you. But I can't imagine first of all being pregnant, parenting a three-year-old no childcare, you know, you have this incredibly complicated position. And I was just thinking to myself, oh my goodness, how did you manage all of this, you know, at one time? Like, how, how did you, like, how did you manage all of this at the same time? Yeah, I would say that I wake up every day realizing that I am blessed and that quite frankly, I have a lot of privileges. I have a husband who was, was and is incredibly supportive um, of my, profession, my professionalism. So being able to say, hey, husband, I need to take a break. Can you watch Caroline for a second while I run and do this interview or I, or I respond to this press question or a question from the mayor's office? I also have, um, you know, the, quite frankly, the, the financial capabilities to delegate some responsibilities. So I started to outsource my laundry because it became a, a huge burden for me to take care of laundry, keep our house clean and do all the things that I was trying to do every single day. So I, I realized that I'm incredibly privileged to have those opportunities, but more simply put, I really, I just did my best every single day. And when I went to bed at night, I knew that the next day was going to be a fresh morning and I would take it from there and hopefully try to approach and tackle the day's challenges and bring my A game and understand and give myself grace <laughs> when the when when perhaps I didn't quite meet the mark or meet my own standard what the mark is. 
I think it's so important that we're all granting ourselves grace now, but always, right? Because um, we have to, we have to, nobody else is going to do it for us. And we're often our own harshest critics. But I also really appreciate the idea of tomorrow is a new day and I'm going to bring my A game and I'm going to do my best. I think we all know the saying, she believed she could, so she did. But I also really appreciate she believed she could, but she was tired. So she put her feet up and thought, you know, I'll try again tomorrow. Right. (laughs) And I think that's something we should all adopt. Yeah. And I want to be clear because I think that for many women, you might look through social media or look on the news and go, wow, these people really have it together. But there were plenty of moments throughout the last year where I just broke down and cried because I was exhausted. Uh, There were moments where my house was an absolute disaster because I didn't have the energy, nor did my husband to try to put things back together. So, you know, I, like I said, I start each day trying to do my best. I try, I have very high standards for myself and for those who I love and those who I support, but yeah, I give myself grace and knowing that there's another day tomorrow and hopefully, you know, I'll get my goals done and I'll, I'll, I'll try again. You know, we were talking about, you know, the way you've handled this incredible crisis while managing your own life as a mother, a wife, and an advocate, an activist. You're also a philanthropist and you're doing all of these things. And I just wanted to shift our conversation a little bit because some of what you're talking about, I think is so critical to the current situation that we see so many women either losing their jobs or being pushed into this false choice of leaving work to stay home because there is no childcare. Schools are not open. And this I think many of us feel is such a devastating thing and is really impacting not only advancements made for women and, you know, gender issues, but also shifting the way leadership is really envisioned and carried out when there aren't as many women leaders in positions, which certainly there aren't enough as there is, right? So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this she session, as they've been calling it, and what you think we can do to respond to it. Yes. You know, and what, you know, speaking of the she session, which is really challenging to say, (laughs) I've written it multiple times, but saying it out loud, that's a a hard word to say. But the impact on women of color has been absolutely Mm -hmm. devastating, especially because many of the jobs that have been removed or have gone away over the last year are low-income jobs. And oftentimes those jobs are filled by by African-American women or Hispanic or Latino women. So the the results are certainly devastating. What I hope that we as a country and as community members and even as leaders can take away from what we've learned from 2020 and the, the pandemic is the need for one, a workplace culture that supports working families that has flexible hours or where you can work from remote locations or where you're measured on not just showing up for work, but actually getting your job done, knowing that you also carry every individual, whether you're male or female, carries multiple responsibilities to care for other individuals in your household. And then more importantly, I think that if anything else comes out of the pandemic is the argument for paid leave. There are lots of organizations, whether you work for a large corporation, work for government, or work for a small business, where paid leave has certainly come front and center, and the need for paid leave 
not just for women who are, are carrying a child or parents who are looking to adopt a child, but individuals who are caring for others, whether they be male or female, um, caregiving responsibilities are certainly front and center in 2021. And I hope that we'll have some policies in place to address that, not just at large corporations, but at small mom and pop shops as well. So this is such a critical issue. I was actually just having this conversation that I think most people don't realize that the United States is one of only four nations that do not mandate paid leave. And the other three nations are uh, Swaziland, Papua New Guinea, and Lesotho. And that's just, I think, incredible to hear. The question is like, when are we going to make this move? It seems like as a nation, we're so wrapped up in being angry with each other and trying to win for our side that we've forgotten about all of the issues that we really need to be working to serve the people. How do we get an issue like paid leave front and center in a time like this? Sure. So I, as someone who has spent a career in public service and in and out, either working directly for government, whether it be a Republican administration or a Democratic administration, I totally can appreciate and understand the partisanship that happens um, in our national discourse around important issues. I think for an issue like paid leave, there's a lot of great economic arguments and benefits as to why this should be something that that perhaps more conservative individuals should invest in. And for those who are on the the left or the Democratic side, I think that there's a lot of compassionate reasons why paid leave just makes sense from a government standpoint. And I hope that in 2021 and, and beyond, that local communities, local businesses can come together to find a solution that makes sense for their community. Whether that be a mandate at the local state or federal level, or if it's businesses like Walmart and Starbucks, I know that both of them have implemented pretty robust paid leave policies. I know that Nationwide and Columbus has an exemplary paid leave policy. I hope, and so does the city of Columbus, but I hope that other, um, other organizations can do the same because it's, you know, I don't think that paid leave was one of those things that I thought about before having a child and what that would entail and how fortunate I am to be in a, a situation where, you know, I had family members. My mom is a nurse. She's been a nurse for 30 years where my mom could take time off from work to help me with my newborn child, that I had the financial means to, to bring in additional support structures if needed and the employed employment situation where I could take off a few weeks of time to help my body recover. It is I can't even comprehend the struggles that women have to go through who are pregnant, who do not have paid leave for for sick time or for their pregnancy, and they have to navigate that by themselves or leave the workforce because they want to have a child or expand their family or or for whatever reason they're carrying a child. It's it's um, it's unfathomable to me. And I realize that paid leave is much more than just maternal or paternal care, but that's one issue that I can certainly that certainly resonates with me. Yes, right. Because obviously, I mean, you know, we also really need to be talking about elderly care. I have colleagues who, you know, are caring for elderly parents and dealing with, you know, end of life issues with their parents and the grief that comes with that. Plus the overwhelming responsibility for that care is something that we often forget about in the conversation, right? Um, And so important for us to be acknowledging And I wonder, you know, how we get people more invested in the issue. 
it seems like we should all be so invested because, you know, we're all impacted in some way, whether we're caring for a parent, whether we're caring for children, whether we have other persons in our lives that, you know, we're, we're caring for, we're all, we are all impacted by this, but it seems to be so low on the level of issues that, you know, we are continually um, having conversations around. Yeah. And I realized, you know, for this conversation that we, that the, the focus is um, gender and, you know, my experience as a woman, but I think for an issue like paid leave for it to take flight, the way that it really needs to take flight is it needs, we need to broaden the conversation to include more examples of elder care include more examples of men who are also challenged with caregiving responsibilities. A good example is my brother-in-law who had to make a challenging decision on whether or not he would stay employed or leave work to take care of my father-in-law who had pancreatic cancer in the last few months of his life. Those are challenging decisions that every American family is making. And I think that if organizations and advocacy groups and advocates broaden the conversation loudly (laughs) to make it an issue that's not perceived as exclusively just for women, I think that we'll probably get more momentum. And I don't say that uh, to disclude the importance of, as somebody who does a lot of gender gender equity advocacy, um, that my experience as a woman isn't important, but I think a good example of leaders who have broadened the advocacy conversation is the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Mm -hmm. Ginsburg, you know, in her landmark cases. So I think that the more that we can broaden the the scope and the impact, the larger, the broader the coalition will be, and hopefully the more impactful and more urgency will be placed in changing things across the country. I I couldn't agree with you more. Also, as you know, a real advocate for gender equity, if we're not broadening the conversation and helping us all to see how we're impacted, it's just not going to get the attention that we want. So I, I really could not agree with you more. This is the last question I want to ask you. Is there a political career in your future? <laughs> Honestly, um, you know, my goal is to just serve my community. And I realize that sounds like, uh, you know, a, a politician's answer. But truly, I'm just passionate about I'm a passionate about women. I'm passionate about supporting survivors of sexual violence. And I want to make a difference. And so if that means that in the future, there's an opportunity to serve and that service is through a legislative arm or through an executive branch, then I'm all for it. But at the end of the day, my goal is just to help others. So, and I'm very happy in helping others in the way that that I currently do. Sophia, I cannot thank you enough. This has just been um, an eye-opening and wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening in today. And to learn more about our guests, visit our website at womenwellnesswork.ursuline.edu. Don't forget to subscribe to Women's Work on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to your podcasts.